Good morning. This is Advent, the first Sunday of Advent. Advent, of course, refers to the coming of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate in his birth at Christmas. It, it also refers to the return of Christ, the second coming, which we expectantly await. And then Advent refers to this Christmas season, these four Sundays, this being the first, as we lead up to the birth of Jesus Christ. So Advent and these four Sundays really reflect the two ends of our spiritual life, that is the birth and the second coming the first and the second coming of Christ. To us, uh, Advent, Advent re- means in Latin coming or arrival, and it is applied to very important occasions and, and persons, and there's no more notable person or event than the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, the anticipated Savior that is presented to us throughout the Old Testament. Advent involves anticipation and preparation. It involves remembering and expecting. And I certainly want us to be preparing for Christmas and remembering the birth of Christ. Uh, To do that, I've decided to focus, uh, instead of giving up the series, the uh, sobering sayings of Jesus, I'm going to look at sobering sayings about Jesus. And this Sunday, we're going to look at one verse in particular, one statement in particular, in verse 15 of the first chapter of First Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, uh, the one who, whom uh, Paul appointed to uh, head the ministry, the churches, in the very large and important city of the Roman Empire by the name of Ephesus, That one statement is this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, let's put that statement in a little larger setting. And uh, let's read together 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent man. I was shown mercy 
because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the trustworthy statement. It's like Paul stops and he says, let me tell you something. I really want you to hear this. I couldn't tell you anything that's more worthwhile, more trustworthy, more true. Listen and listen well. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Period. But then Paul adds something of his own. A personal thought. He says, of them, I'm the worst. What does that mean? Of all the sinners in the world, no one is greater, and no one is in greater need of saving than me. Is he exaggerating to make a point? Is he engaging in rhetoric to kind of capture our hearts or sink that thought more deeply into our being? In other words, does he kind of pump it up, exaggerate to make a point? Maybe engage, you see, in just a whiff of falsehood for a greater truth. And when you think, uh, he says, I'm the worst. Well, how do we judge that? Who can referee that? I mean, what's the scale? Human comparisons will never work. This much is clear, at least to me. Paul means it. He really means it. The proof, I think, is in, among other things, his self-description. Blasphemer. That's pretty heavy. 
I don't even think you need to engage in fine definition to get a sense of what blasphemy would entail. But he didn't stop there. Persecutor. So in other words, he has, in a blood-curdling fashion, opposed not only God and in Jesus Christ, not only this Jesus Christ and his followers, but all who would come to Christ. He's trying to stamp it out. And we know, we know from Acts chapter 8, read those first four verses again, or from Acts chapter 26, when he was standing before King Agrippa, late in Later, much later in his life. And he gave his testimony. And he described himself. And he described his persecution. How he voted. He was among those. Once Christians were captured and brought, and in that tribunal, that human tribunal that decided Whether innocent or guilty, Paul voted guilty, and he voted for death. He had blood on his conscience. And not only that, he describes himself, his disposition, his attitude, his mindset, the kind of man he was. He uses one of the strongest terms in, in Greek language across the board, down through history. It's translated in a number of ways, violent man. That doesn't really do it justice. He's an arrogant man. He's so full of pride that he's a bully. Anything he does is more important than what others do. He doesn't compare himself here in 1 Timothy when he's talking and as he describes what he was, he doesn't describe himself by comparing himself to humans, other people. He compares himself to the Jesus Christ that revealed himself to him. That's very important. That's at the heart of what he's talking about. He has met Jesus Christ. And it's comparing himself with Jesus Christ that causes him to see himself as the worst. And in the light of God's beauty, you could say he sees his ugliness. I tried this week counting all the goods of my life, the good things I do, the good person I am. 
I found it really interesting how it just, in the light of Christ, it was like holding something so fragile, and as you tried to, to feel its weight or substance, just it, it crumbled into ashes. It just seemed so, so petty, so piddly. I know we can get caught up in comparison. I think it's often a big part of our everyday lives. I don't even think we often compare ourselves to the Lord. We don't think of standing before him. We don't think of what we could somehow produce, pull out of our bag or belongings or our memories, our history, and bring before the Lord as a gift to offer to him on our behalf as our worth. Something to somehow vindicate us in comparison with anyone else, for that matter. But in the light of his grace, his love, his goodness, it all seems as nothing. See, Paul, by comparison with humans, if, he, if we look at what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, well, he, he describes himself uh, as good. And the reason is he's comparing himself with, with those uh, Judaizers, those who were saying that the things of Judaism mix well with the things of Christianity, Christ plus Judaism, Christ plus the law, Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus purity responsibilities, food restrictions, and all of the things that set you apart when comparisons are made. And Paul would have none of it. He said, I, I was all of that. But now he says, he says it in language that we can't quite put into colloquial, contemporary street language. He says, I count it, I regard it, I view it as dung in comparison with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he says, I've set my pursuit in life now to experience the resurrection and identify myself with his death. Now, if you're getting this, when he says, I've, I regard that as nothing, as worthless, as, as dung, and I've set my pursuit in life to experience, to know the resurrection the resurrection power, the resurrection life of Jesus Christ and to identify with his death. Because it is only in identifying with his death, just as when we enter the waters of baptism and we're lowered into the ground that is this watery grave and we are raised, we are lowered into his death and we are raised to newness of life. We are 
crucified with him and buried and raised to newness of life, which is conditioned upon the certainty of his resurrection. And it's something we experience in this life, but we can only know it through death to ourselves. And I don't need to begin reciting verses to you that Jesus are just, we call them verses, but they represent the poetry, the inspired, spirit-inspired experience of Paul's life. Pour it out so that we can better understand the reality, the truth, the gift, the perfection, the goodness of what God has done in Jesus Christ. We call it Christmas. So yeah, I think that when Paul says, uh, I am the worst, that's how he knows the best. That's how he experiences it. That's how he realizes the best. The worst can better feel, can better know, can better identify with the best. And Paul says, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. There's something there for us, something there that we need to understand and know, is that when I'm at my worst, he is at his best. When I see myself as the worst, then I see him as the best. And that's the way to truly evaluate and understand all that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is doing here. Jesus said, the person who has been forgiven much loves much. Think about that. The person who has been forgiven much loves much. Well, if I don't think I need much forgiveness, just a touch-up here and there, you know, just a brush off, a little polish. Oh, yeah, I had an accident the other day, just a fender bender. Paul didn't see it that way. And you know, when we take inventory, when we reflect, we don't either. When we really see ourselves in the light of Christ, we see the best, and then we realize. <laughs> I'm the worst. How do I get into the Christmas spirit? That was the question I was asking myself this week. I was asking it on our behalf. And so I went to the place where I get all my answers, Google. <laughs> I Googled, how do I get into the Christmas spirit, Google? Well, Google gave me a few answers, and it was interesting. I wasn't the only person that's been asking this question, at least in one manner or another. And this was a, a, a posted on a kind of a bulletin board, a, a digital bulletin board on the web. 
This is what this person wrote. Earlier this year, around the middle of March, I spent roughly a week sadly singing Christmas songs to myself and brooding over the fact that it would be so long until December. However, lo and behold, here it is. And I just don't care. This is by far the best time of year, and I'm just letting it pass by like it was the month leading up to Labor Day. So here's my request. Someone, exclamation mark, make me care about Christmas. Well, along with that post, uh, you know, in answer to my question, there were lots of tips. Everybody's got tips. So I just give you some that I thought were the best. Uh, One, decorate your home. Two, turn on Christmas music. Three, read the story of Christmas. Four, exchange gifts. Five, attend Christmas church services. You're you're already on your way. (laughs) Make the perfect Christmas dinner. Seven, say to yourself and to all, Merry Christmas. And uh, I heard an eight this morning. Uh, pick up a Koinonia foster child tag so that you can uh, buy a present for a Koinonia foster child. Well, here are the tips that I think we get from Paul. Tips on feeling Christmas from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. First, in verses 12 through 14, remember and give thanks. Remember what, what this is all about. Paul remembers here. I don't know if you've ever given much thought to gratitude. There's a lot to gratitude. If I could give you one great truth, it would be be grateful. Practice gratitude. Express gratitude. Make the the heartbeat of your life gratitude. I would say that to anyone. I believe that people, if they could actually enter into and exercise gratitude each and every day, I think it would lead them to Jesus Christ even if they didn't want to have anything to do with them when they began. Because gratitude has a way of causing you to realize that who you are today and who you have become is built on the shoulders, on the help on the favor and kindness and generosity of other people, right and left, every day of your life, in ways that you don't even recognize or appreciate. It changes the way you see everything, and it ultimately leads you to an openness of gratitude toward God as our creator, as the one true God. And we who know Christ, oh my goodness, are we open to gratitude. Jeffrey Burton Russell, a historian, wrote, happiness doesn't always produce gratitude. A lot of times we're happy because we've got something, but it doesn't make us thankful. It doesn't make us even appreciate the gift. 
We're all aware that we don't want our little, our little ones to grow up and not be appreciative. So, yeah, just like a kid on Christmas morning, we can be happy, but it doesn't make us thankful. But gratitude, Jeffrey Burton Russell says, gratitude always produces happiness. Because all of a sudden you are open to all the goodness in this world and the goodness in your life and the goodness of people around you. And instead of doing subtraction in life, you start doing addition. You start adding to the worldview that you have. You start adding to the circumstances of your daily life. You start adding in expectation to the people that disappoint you. And of course, because of Jesus in our life, all of this is supercharged with the greatest spiritual meaning because you know that God is in and about and through and above and at the end of it all. Cultivate the habit of being grateful for every good thing that comes to you and give thanks continuously because all things have contributed to your advancement and because of that you should include all things in your gratitude. Ralph Waldo Emerson G.K. Chesterton said, gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Paul expresses gratitude. He expresses thanks. And gratitude, thanksgiving, depends on remembering. Paul thanks Jesus Christ, I should say Christ Jesus, in verse 12. That's what he says. I mean, it's so easy to read right over, but he says, I'm grateful. That's how you translate that. I'm grateful. I'm grateful, and here's the word order, and I'm just going to translate it. I can see it in my mind. He says, I am grateful to him who has empowered me who gives me strength. I like the word who enables me, who vitalizes me, who infuses me. You know these words we have like in power, empower? That's in power, power inside, empower, encourage. It's being encouraged, it's being given courage from within as to a part, you know, I don't know where it goes, like in your heart or in your soul or in your mind. These are the kinds of words that we talk about when we're talking about being enabled. That's what Paul's talking about. He's attributing that to Jesus Christ and he thanks him for it. In other words, Christ is the source of power for my life. He's the one who energizes me. 
He's the one that gets me up in the morning. He's the one that motivates me and picks me up when I'm down. And then Paul says, Christ Jesus, our Lord, not just my personal Lord. See, this is what's available to you too, but I am so thankful. And then he says, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who put me in the ministry. Considering me trustworthy, worthy of confidence. Just think about all that that says about our relationship with Jesus Christ. That we can view him as one who looks upon us and has confidence in us. That's where trustworthiness comes from. People consider you trustworthy when they put their confidence in you. They invest in you. They believe in you. Jesus, Paul says, did that. And then he says, which is totally unbelievable. I mean, who puts their trust, who considers worthy of confidence somebody who was a blasphemer, who took your name and dragged it through the mud of ridicule and belittlement to the people that were trying to follow you and then persecuted, chased them down, brought them to trial, voted for their death and felt good about it and was at base the kind of bully you and I never want to meet, a self-righteous, arrogant, prideful bully. He says, you bet I'm thankful I am so grateful. His grace, he goes on to say, his grace, he lavished on me. Paul uses a word that is not used anywhere else in the New Testament and only one time in the Old Testament Apocrypha, nowhere in the Old Testament Greek translation, one time, it is built on the word to have more than enough, to have sufficiency. And then he adds on it hyper, the word huper. We get our word hyper in Greek. So he notches it up to have more than more than enough. God's grace was poured out. He says, with faith and love. He feels that. He experiences that. That's what happens when you take truth to heart. When you personalize this. And that is exactly what Paul does. That's a second point. Personalize it. We should inspire one another. I get up here and I try to Start your engine. I haven't mowed the lawn lately. 
But man, I've got years of experience. First with a push mower. Some of you don't, what? Push mower? But then, when we saved up our money, and I got myself a Toro. And you know how you do that? You take that cord. I'm, I'm sure they got automatic ignitions now, but you yank that cord. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to do. I think that's what Paul's trying to do. He's talking to Timothy here, and everyone that this letter will be read to later. In fact, he so personalizes this And you can see it because he talks about how God is using him. He says, God is using me as an example. See, um, I think when when Paul says, uh, twice he says, I was shown mercy, which means I was shown kindness when I deserved something very different. I was shown kindness. And the first time he says it, I think it's an answer to the question, why would Jesus put me in ministry? Why would he put me, why would he trust me? Because I acted in ignorance. I didn't know the truth. And that was revealed to him when he saw the truth of Jesus Christ. And that truth so seared his heart that it changed him. He could never go back. And that truth has to kind of sear our heart in a way that it can you know, it can flourish. It can grow larger, but never die. Because there's just no truth like that. And there's no truth like Jesus. There's no truth like the gospel. There's no truth like this truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's for you if you're a sinner. Paul says, I am. In my mind, in my heart, you can't outdo me. I'm in greater need than anyone. But his grace is greater than my greatest need. He remembers. He personalizes it. He said, there was a reason that I was shown mercy. And then he gives us this purpose clause that people could see in me what they could see in themselves if they give their lives to Jesus Christ, if they trust him. His inexhaustible, the word is complete. Think about it. What's complete? Is there any deficiency? No, none whatsoever. That means his patience is inexhaustible. It's complete. And he's waiting for you. He's waiting for me every day. Oh, I received Jesus Christ. I prayed a prayer. I can tell you about that night. I remember it well. I remember the first steps I took in Christ. I can count my steps in Christ. But you know what? He's still exercising his patience and waiting for me. Because I'm still that guy who has to come to realize that when I'm the worst, I better feel, i much better, in a much greater way, in a more faith, truly faith-believing way. I feel 
that he's the best. And I trust him, and I turn to him, and I walk by faith in him. And I believe in him when I've given up hope and faith and belief in anyone else. And worship, worship that acknowledges him. Verse 17 is beautiful, very beautiful. You might reflect on them, acknowledging him, stopping the gerbil cage for a bit and just reflect on what he's done, personalize it, and extol and glorify the Lord. We got a minute to do that right now, just to kind of set everything aside. Because the bread and the cup is the manual way that Jesus instituted for us, his church, that we should remember that we should personalize and that we should glorify and extol.